We're going to look at James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10, and then when we're done with that, I'm going to talk about uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. So if you want to stay for both, you can. If you want to leave when I'm done with James, I'm not offended. Um, But James 4, 4 through 10, uh, I want you to imagine that you and your family adopt a, a boy of about 11 or 12 years old who's lived his whole life on the streets. Imagine how difficult that would be, how big a transition that would be for that young man and for your family, because a lot of the things he'd learned to survive on the streets wouldn't really fly in life in your family. Uh, fighting for your food and, and uh, standing up for your rights and, and, and being strong against others, well, that doesn't work when you're, you're dealing with brothers and sisters. You need, to, you need more of a spirit of cooperation and grace. So you'd often have to tell that kid, listen, You're not on the streets anymore. You're in our family, and we don't do things that way in our family. We treat each other differently. Think about how long it would take for him to adjust to that new reality. And I think that's a good picture of what it's like for a Christian. Because no matter where you grew up, and many of us, I think, grew up in Christian homes, in in a Christianized part of the world, regardless... Nothing in our makeup, our personality, our, our background prepares us to follow Jesus. All of, all of what it means to be a part of the family of God is alien to our nature. And we have to be totally changed. This is why Jesus called it being born again. And, and so as we continue in the book of James, this passage is about what it means to reject the ways of the world and live as friends of God, to live as part of his family. So... Uh, verse one, verse four of James four says, "You adulterous people, don't you love how James is tender and uh, diplomatic? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God." So, as I've said before, the word "the world" is used in Scripture in two different ways. And you have to be careful. You have to pay attention to the context to know which one he's using, uh, which one any particular author is using. Sometimes when the Bible says the world, it's talking about creation. It's talking about the universe or planet Earth or the people who live here. Uh, John 3.16 is a perfect example. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? But it also uses the, the word the world to mean the values that dominate this present age. The, the ways of this age that are opposed to the things of God. So values, for instance, like I matter more than other people. I should have my way. I should do what I want because I matter more than others. That's one of the values of this world. Uh, my desires are more important than the commands of God. So if I want something and God's commands say it's wrong, well, that doesn't matter because my desires are more important. That's one of the values of the world. Or this life is important, eternity's not. That is one of the values of this world. Don't worry about eternity, just find your happiness now. So those are, those are the ways of the world, and, and so James is commanding us, and he's not the only one in Scripture. You have to understand, you have to choose between the, the ways of the world and the ways of God. You can't be friends of both. You can't live in both worlds, so to speak. Uh, again, it's important to understand the distinction between those two uses of the term the world, because we should love the people in this world, we're commanded to, but we should hate the values of this world. And it's hard for us Christians sometimes to get that distinction right. So 
When he, when he calls us, you adulterous people, it's interesting, the word in Greek is actually a feminine word, so he's literally calling us adulteresses. Whether we're men or women, he's calling us adulteresses. The reason he uses that term is because when you read the Old Testament, which James was steeped in the Old Testament, God often refers to Israel as his wife. This is common imagery in the Old Testament. And often he talks about how my wife, my bride Israel, has been unfaithful to me. The, of course, the classic example is Hosea, where the prophet actually marries a woman who cheats on him. And he is accusing us of pretending to be devoted to God while secretly sneaking around behind his back to find our true happiness in the ways of the world. That's why he's calling us adulteresses, because he knows we all struggle with that. Now I'm going to move on to verse 5, but first let me just say this. How to tell you're a friend of the world? I think one good test is to ask yourself, what is your gut level emotion when you think about the return of Christ? See, if you think about the return of Christ and you think, oh, well, yeah, maybe someday, but not yet. That's a bad sign because that says I'm not ready to go, let go of this world. Because you understand, if, if you, you need to get this through your mind, everything that is good and righteous and worthy of love in this world is going to be carried over to the next. It's only the things that are evil. It's only the things that must be rejected that we're going to have to say goodbye to. So if your emotion is not, hallelujah, come Lord Jesus, then you need to ask yourself, am I too in love with the things of this world? All right, verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So I've shared this recently in, on Sunday mornings, so I won't spend a lot of time here, but the jealousy of God is a common theme in Scripture. It does not refer to the kind of jealousy we think of in a possessive boyfriend right? But think instead about a concerned husband. Think instead about a parent who is worried about the, the crowd that, that his son or daughter is hanging out with and says, okay, I need to get them away from those people before they get into trouble. That's the jealousy of God. Uh, verse 6 is actually a quote uh, when it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's a quote from Proverbs 3.34. And that, again, is something that comes up over and over again in Scripture, that humility is the way to greatness. And that's the opposite of what this world teaches us. Everything in this world is structured in a way that fights against humility. Think about it. When you apply for a job, you don't tell your prospective employer about all your shortcomings. Right? You want to make yourself look as good as possible. You list all your education, your qualifications, all the good things you've ever done. Uh, if someone's running for office, they want to talk about all the things they've accomplished. They don't want to talk about any of the mistakes they've made. That's how you get elected. Heck, for that matter, getting a date. What do we do when we go on a date? Or when we ask someone out? We, we put on our best clothes. We, we come up with a smooth line. Right? We want to make ourselves look as good as possible. Everything about this world fights against humility. I'm not saying that running for office or applying for a job or asking someone on a date is a sin. I'm saying everything in this world trains us to try to promote ourselves when God says, if you want to grow in Christ, you've got to do the opposite. If you want to be part of the family of God, you've got to focus on the opposite. You've got to focus on humility. Humble yourself and then you'll be exalted. And next comes a series of commands on how to grow in Christ. So, First one, verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God. One of our problems and one of the problems I see in individual Christians 
and in Christianity at large in America is we seem to think we can negotiate with God. As if we're equal partners, as if we can say, okay, God, I'll do this and this and this, but then in return, you need to give me this. You need to provide this. And it's only when we say, I am the subject, you are the king. You are the Lord, I am the servant. It's only then that we can grow. It's only when we give ourselves fully to him with nothing held back. That's when growth happens. That's what it means to say, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And we don't, we don't emphasize that often enough. We sometimes make it seem as if that Christianity is, is a checklist of things to do in order to get stuff from God. So if you go to these classes, if you sit through these sermons, if you sing these songs, if you give these offerings, if you say no to these bad things and say yes to these good things, well, then God owes you. When instead, it's, God, I come to you broken and in need of salvation, and I am yours. Wherever you send me, I will go. That's, that's the way to grow. Then he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, this is some really good news. The good news is that the devil has no power over a child of God, except the power we give to him. The devil, I mean, you remember the old comedian that said, the devil made me do it. That's literally impossible. The devil can't make a child of God do anything. The devil has power over us only when we willingly give it to him. Uh, but the question is, will we resist him? So some of you have probably seen the movie Walk the Line uh, about Johnny Cash. It came out, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. I love that movie. Um, there's a scene in it that I love when... Uh, Johnny Cash is trying to recover from alcohol or from a drug addiction, and the, the Carter family has him in there, is over at his house. You know, they're taking care of him, they're trying to nurse him back to health and through this detox, and his drug dealer shows up because he hadn't heard from him in a while, right? He wants to come and you know, how come you hadn't ordered any from me? And the Carters, you know, this gospel singing family, meet him at the gate with, with guns drawn, right? Even old Mama <laughs> Carter has a pistol, and the and the drug dealer tucks tail and runs. I love that scene. And it, that's what we see here. It's this idea, because in many ways the devil has a lot in common with that, that drug dealer. He pretends to be your friend. He gets you hooked on things that, oh yeah, this makes you feel good in a short term, but it's long term, it's awful for you. But if you'll just resist, he'll run away. Why? Not because of you, but because you have Christ in you and he knows, he knows who's the boss, all right? Then he says in verse 8, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. This is similar to a promise that I love that's found in Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is what God is looking for, is people who want to know Him. Not people who are trying to use Him, but people who just say, Lord, I want to know you. I've, I've finally realized that no treasure in this world matches up to knowing you. And so if you give me those other things, great. I'll enjoy them. I'll praise you for them. But what I really want is to know you. So when you draw near to God, he draws near to you. The promise there is God doesn't hide from us. Whatever steps you take to know God better will be rewarded. And let's face it, what other, what other area of life can you say that about? What other area of life can you say that you, have, you can be guaranteed 100% success every time you try hard? That's not true in finance, that's not true in politics, that's not true in business or, or athletics, but it's true in your walk with God. Every time you choose to, 
Pursue him with all your heart. You're going to find him and you're going to grow in him. Then he says, still in verse eight, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So calling us double-minded is another way of accusing us of being spiritually unfaithful. We, we say we love God, but we're really out to find happiness in the things of this world. I think if a lot of Christians were honest, they would say, they would, they would honestly say, yes, I need Jesus to get me to heaven when I die. I want him to forgive my sins. I want God to protect me. I want him to provide for me. But I really think that if I'm going to be happy, it's going to come through money, or it's going to come through sex, or it's going to come through uh, success, or through, uh, through popularity, or, or, or any number of things. If we were honest, that's the way a lot of us really feel. So he says, admit that and get clean. When he says, cleanse your hands, that's, that's Old Testament language. That's straight out of the Psalms, and it refers to the things you do. Admit the things you do that aren't pleasing to God. When he says, purify your hearts, again, Old Testament language, it's talking about what's inside of you. It's talking about the things you love and desire. Confess to God, Lord, some of these things that I love aren't bad. You gave them to me, and they're there to be enjoyed, but I've made them too important. I've made them bigger in my life. Uh, than you. I've made them seem to be necessary for my joy, and I need to put you first. Cleanse your hearts. Cleanse your hands and, and purify your hearts. Then in verse 9, he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be tor- turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I've never seen that on a coffee mug <laughs> or a bumper sticker. I don't know anybody who that's their favorite scripture. And, and let's be careful. Don't take that out of context. If you look at that and say, oh, well, then a righteous person should always be sad. Well, you'd have to read the whole scripture to see that's not the case at all. There are many, many, many scriptures that tell us that we should rejoice. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Uh, Just for one example, book of Proverbs tells us as men, we should rejoice in the wife of our youth. So if you married a woman when you were young, even when uh, you've been living together for years from then, you should still enjoy her. God wants you to enjoy the things you've been given, and you should take joy in a lot of his, in all of his gifts and in him himself. But there is such a thing as godly sorrow. So reading this in context, what he, what he, he's talking to people who are in love with the things of this world. He's saying instead of chasing fun all the time, you need to chase after some godly sorrow because that's how you're going to grow. Well, what's godly sorrow? Godly sorrow is when you look honestly at the sin in your own life and it breaks your heart. Instead of doing what we typically do, which is on those rare occasions when we admit we're sinners, we make excuses. Sure, I did that, but I know most of the people I know do things like that. Or, yeah, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than that guy. Or, yeah, I know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner, but, but he made me do it. I mean, anybody else would have done it if, if they'd been... Through what I, I mean, we all we have all these rationalizations and excuses, but growth only happens when we when we feel godly sorrow. That's what drives us to true repentance. True repentance isn't just I sure wish I hadn't gotten caught. True repentance is I wish I could change so I never do that again because I don't want to hurt my my Lord. I don't want to hurt the people around me. Uh, I don't want to be that person anymore. And when you get to that point. I think all of us have. And when you get to that point often, that's when you start to really grow. And then verse 10, and this is where we'll stop and move on. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So 
you'll recognize if you've read the Gospels at all. This is something that came up over and over again in the ministry of Jesus. By my count, at least three different times, Jesus had to sit down the twelve and say, listen guys, you got it all wrong. You're fighting to see who's the best. You're trying to be at the top of the heap when that's not the way to be great. The way to be great is to be the servant of all. To be like a little child. To, to be humble. Uh, you should... It, Jesus, I don't know how many times, I didn't do the math on this, but I don't know how many times he said, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And I find that incredibly intriguing to think about how that's going to play out in heaven and how many surprises we're going to have when we get there and find people that maybe we barely knew them, never really paid attention to them, and they are being trumpeted left and right by the angels. This is a great man. This was a great woman. And we think, oh, really? I never even paid attention. Whereas people that we just thought hung the moon, and maybe even ourselves, as we promoted ourselves, and we find, yeah, I'm glad to be here, but man, I sure wish I'd lived a different kind of life because I'd, in eternity I'm not reaping the rewards I thought I would. Why? Because we put ourselves first instead of putting ourselves last. Instead of humbling ourselves before the Lord so He would exalt us, we try to exalt ourselves. And, and, and I, I, I don't mean to make that sound easy because... It goes against every instinct in us. I think it's false to believe that only the loud, smart-alecky person has a hard time with pride. Only the rich man, only the celebrity, all of us struggle with pride. It manifests itself in different ways, but all of us struggle with it. The war against that force of pride is something we'll be fighting until the day we die. So how do we win? I can think of three ways. You got to pray for it. Pray for humility. Pray for humility on a regular basis. I know I do. Number two, confess sin often. Confess it to the Lord, and it sure helps to confess it to others. And we're commanded to confess it to others. We're not commanded to confess it to a priest because Jesus is our priest. This is where we differ from our Roman Catholic brothers. We don't think we need a human being to absolve us of our sin, but confessing our sins to other people, to, to stand in your life group, for instance, and say, y'all, y'all need to pray for me. I'm struggling right now with my temper, or I'm struggling right now with, uh, with self-pity, or whatever, whatever sin you happen to struggle with. That can be humbling. That can be a beautiful thing. And you know what happens then? It encourages other people to become transparent and to get right before the Lord. So pray for humility, confess often, and then third, serve others and ask for nothing in return. Serve others and ask for nothing in return. So little, little window into my world. I love preaching. I love what I do here on Wednesday nights. I don't know which one I love more, Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. They're both a lot of fun. I enjoy it. I feel like I'm doing what God called me to do, but there's nothing about this that makes me humble. In fact, it's the opposite. It's very easy for me to start thinking I'm great because, look, all these people show up to listen to me talk. So I've got I've to be, now God's given me a good family. That helps because they don't treat me like I can't, you know, like I, I'm, you know, the Lord and master of the universe. But I have to, I have to take advantage. And I don't want to do this. I, I, I almost never want to do this. But whenever I can get to a a place where there's an opportunity for me to help somebody in a humble way, in a, in a way that doesn't make me look good. Nobody's going to notice it. I'm not going to get paid. I'm not going to get credit. If I can just help somebody, 
that makes me humble. That makes me realize, you know, that's, 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 the, that's the reason Jesus washed the feet of his disciples the night before he died. It was an act of love. It was a practical ministry, but it was also an example to them. You want to see greatness? Greatness is doing what nobody else wants to do and doing it, asking nothing in return. And, and the more often you put yourself in that position to, to serve others and ask for nothing in return, the more you'll grow in that humility and defeat pride. So I'm going to pray now, and then we're going to talk about our second subject. Normally I go a little longer than this on the Bible study, but I, I kind of ripped through that. So uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for your desire not just to save us from hell, but to save us from our sin and to change us into your image. I thank you, Lord, for everyone here and pray that you would implant the word in our hearts and help us to apply it, help us to grow in humility, help us, Lord, to grow in godliness. And I pray that the world would see the fruit in us. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we transition to talking about the Southern Baptist Convention, I need to say this. One thing I always try to do is make sure that what I say, I can back up with Scripture. My hope is God speaks and I don't. I can't say that tonight because what I'm going to do is give you my opinion. This is my opinion. And some of it's pretty brutally honest. And, uh, some of you may disagree with some of the things I'm going to say. Some of you may know people who would furiously disagree with me, but this is my opinion. Some of you didn't grow up in Southern Baptist life, and uh, so it's going to take some explaining because Southern Baptists are different. We're a peculiar people. And some of you have heard things about our convention that concern you. And if you're concerned, you need to find out the truth. I commend you for that. My purpose is, number one, to explain what all the fuss is about. And number two, to give a more detailed report on what I observed at the annual meeting a couple weeks ago in California. I came back that Sunday. I just told you a couple of things. And I said, later on, I'll tell you more. Well, this is that more. And how I feel, how I feel about the direction of our denomination in general. So first, first off, before I get into that, I just need to real quick talk about what the Southern Baptist Convention is because it's not like other denominations. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, unlike most denominations you can name, does not hold any authority over its churches. Our church, for instance, hires its own employees, decides direction, uh, sets its own budget, Nobody oversees us or directs us other than hopefully the Holy Spirit. That's my prayer. Um, so I don't answer to anyone in Nashville or Atlanta. Hopefully I only answer to y'all and to the Lord. So what is the SBC then? It's very much bottom up instead of top down. It's, the SBC is really just a group of entities like the Foreign Mission Board, now the International Mission Board, now the uh, North American Mission Board, the seminaries, and other organizations. And we, through our offerings, support them financially. And people from Southern Baptist churches sit on the trustee boards of all those organizations and govern them. Every year, there's an annual meeting. Every year, that's why it's annual, right? 
Um, every year it's hosted in a different location. This past year it was in Anaheim. Somebody said, why Anaheim? I said, well, they move it all around. Next year it's going to be in New Orleans. The year after that, Indianapolis. Um, at the annual meeting, they elect officers, they vote on motions and resolutions, and they hear reports from all the different entities that make up the convention. When I say officers, that includes the SBC president. Now, this is important to understand. The SBC president is almost always the pastor of a church. They don't get paid for what they do. They serve one to two years. Uh, their main job during those one to two years are to make speeches, to do interviews with the media, chair meetings, and most importantly, they appoint people to those trustee boards of all those organizations. Now, having said all that, that's why I talk so rarely about the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't talk about this a lot. First of all, as much as I, I'm glad to be a Baptist, I've, I've been a Baptist my whole life, Baptist discipled me, told me about Jesus, I'm educated in a Baptist seminary, I support, I love working together and sending missionaries all over the world, but I'm, my goal is not, and our church's goal is not to make good Baptists. I hope you all understand that. Our church's goal is to make disciples, period. But also, I talk about it so little because, frankly, what happens in the Southern Baptist Convention has very little impact on us on a local level. So if, if I couldn't stand the guy who was the president of the SBC, it wouldn't change what I do. I would pray for him, and I'd probably show up at the convention next year and try to vote against him, but it wouldn't change. He couldn't come down and, and change my doctrine or any of that stuff. So that's why I talk so little about it. However... Recently, there have been accusations of a liberal drift in the convention. Now, let me explain something. There's two different kinds of liberalism. There's political liberalism, I think we're all familiar with. Then there's theological liberalism, which is something different. Theological liberalism is where uh, you interpret the scriptures in a way where you downplay the Bible's authority and its infallibility. So in it, for instance, if you say, I know the Bible says that sex between two men is wrong, but that doesn't hold anymore. We have a more enlightened view. That's theological liberalism. If you look at the Bible and you say, I know the Bible says that Jesus was raised from the dead after he died on Easter Sunday. Uh, I don't think that literally happened. I think that's just the disciples way of saying that his teachings still live on in our hearts. That's theological liberalism. Okay, you can see how destructive that can be. And, and it has destroyed many denominations that once were great, that once were soul-winning denominations. In Baptist life, in, starting in 1980, there was a long battle over the theological liberalism in the seminaries. We now know that as the conservative resurgence, the theologically conservative side won decisively, but it was a, a long controversy for about uh, 10 or 15 years. This time, no one is accusing the SBC of what I would call theological liberalism. No one is saying that our seminaries aren't teaching the Bible or our seminaries are, are saying that uh, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead or, or that we can't follow the scriptures. The arguments have, really have nothing to do with the truth of scripture or the authority of scripture, but instead it's about is wokeness invading Southern Baptist life, or to put it another way, are, are leaders of the convention importing ideas from the political left into the church, including things like critical race theory, socialism, and, and other, 
other left-leaning philosophies. And let me just say, if that is the case, then yes, we have a big problem. We have a huge problem. For the record, I don't want anybody importing any political philosophy into our convention, even one I agree with. The job of our convention is to be guided by the scriptures and by the Holy Spirit, not by political philosophies. But I again say, if the critics are right, then this is something to be concerned about for sure. So these critics who are making these accusations formed something a few years ago called the Conservative Baptist Network, CBN. Their mission is to spread this message that uh, our convention is drifting leftward and to strategize a takeover of the SBC by winning the presidential election at the annual meeting, and then that president will then appoint people that they approve of to all the boards, etc. Um, they've spread this media, they've spread this message, and, and several Christian media outlets have picked it up. And so, if you listen to uh, Christian radio, you might hear that. If you listen to Christian talk shows on radio, you might hear that. Uh, there's been a movie recently that I have seen called Enemies Within the Church that makes that charge against evangelical Christianity at large, but specifically the SBC as well. All right. So that's what the fuss is about. Now, here's where my opinion starts, okay? If y'all were with some of you that come on Wednesday nights know that recently we studied the book of Galatians. Galatians may be the earliest book of the New Testament. It was written around the year 48. So we're talking 15, at most 20 years after Jesus. Uh, people from Jerusalem, Christians from Jerusalem, were coming down to Turkey, to the churches in Galatia, and they were stirring up trouble in those churches, telling these Gentile believers, you're not really saved because you don't follow the law of Moses. Your men haven't been circumcised. You're not eating the right foods. You're not observing the right customs. You need to repent. You're not really saved. And Paul was so angry. Let me, let me say it differently. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was so angry about it, you can feel the heat rising off the pages as he writes the book of Galatians. It's his angriest letter by far. At one point, he even tells those people to castrate themselves, and I'm not making that up. So this was an angry man because he did not like people stirring up trouble within his church. And so from the start, from the very beginning, there's been a strain within the church that seeks to make trouble. And there's certain characteristics of that strain of people. There's a lack of humility. There's four things I've identified. A lack of humility or grace. So these Christians are convinced they are the Lord's true people. Anybody who disagrees with them is on the side of the devil, just as plain as, as dirt. And some of you probably know of churches in the hometown you grew up in that were like that, where uh, they just kept drawing lines in the sand that, okay, if you don't agree with me on this, then, then you're out. Until it was just this little church and their pastor, and they're the only ones going to heaven, right? That's the logical end of this strain of Christianity. Lack of humility or grace. Number two, making minor things into major battles. So there are things in the, in the Word of God that are so clear and so important that we have to agree on them or we can't worship together. There are doctrines that we have to stand upon or die. Um, and, and the irony is that the people in this camp 
If you sit down with them and talk about those major doctrines, you'll find you probably agree with them on all that stuff. And they still don't like you. They still think you're lost because you disagree with them on something else. And they demand 100% agreement. They'll split a church. They'll fire a pastor. They'll destroy the reputation of a godly man or woman simply for disagreeing with them on some minor point of, of interpretation, something that's not even in the scriptures, something that's just their opinion about life. There's a third characteristic, and that is how they see non-Christians. They see non-Christians as the enemy to be defeated, not as lost people to be won. That doesn't mean they don't win souls. They do. But their primary message is how evil the world is, how evil the people out there are, how they are coming to get us, and we need to be watch out for them. Their faith is more about protecting themselves and their families from unbelievers than reaching unbelievers with the gospel. And then number four, they measure their spiritual maturity by their anger. Now, are there times to be angry? Absolutely. There is such a thing as, uh, as righteous indignation. We saw Jesus in the temple. I just don't think human beings do that very often. To them, you're holier the angrier you get. The angrier you are at evil, the more you are and I mean external evil, not your own sin, the, the more you are a child of God. Whereas the actual things that the Bible teaches us are characteristics of a follower of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit. You don't see love in them. You don't see joy. You don't see peace, patience. You don't see kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And in my opinion, the CBN is an example of this brand of Christianity. Now, does that mean anybody who has concerns about the Southern Baptist Convention is, is in that camp? No, I have concerns about Southern Baptist Convention. There's a lot of things that I have concerns about in our denomination. We desperately need revival. And is everybody who votes with them or, or, or follows them in this camp? No, but I'm saying the leaders of this organization are. This is that strain of Christianity. And I see no evidence of liberal drift in the Southern Baptist Convention. Problems, yes, but not liberal drift. What I see instead is evidence of divisive, unchristlike behavior, false accusations, ruining the reputation of good people for no good reason, lust for power, and lack of integrity among the people who are stirring up the trouble. Now, let me give you an example. So, my former seminary, the president, not the one I, when I was there, but one voted in since then, was fired in 2018. Why? Because, among other things, he tried to talk a female employee out of reporting a rape to the police. When he was fired, he did not go quietly. He uh, stole a bunch of artwork out of his office. Um, he took the donor list the people who donate to the seminary and immediately began calling them and asking them to start donating to a foundation that he started. Um, and when I heard all this, I wasn't surprised, and I'll tell you why. So a few years ago, the staff and I, we do an annual staff retreat. We go different places. We went to Southwestern Seminary for our staff retreat. For the most part, it was a great time. They've got great facilities. It was good to be back on campus. But since I've been there, they've built this big, nice chapel building where every day they have chapel services. It looks like a big mega church. They had stained glass windows. 
When I looked at the stained glass windows, guess what was on the stained glass windows? Not biblical scenes, not uh, quotes from the scriptures, not even just pretty glass. It was, it was portraits of the president and his wife and all of his allies and their wives. I mean, right there. It's, it's never going to happen, but if somebody gave a bunch of money and said, we want to put a stained glass window of, of you, Pastor, on our... I would resign before I'd let that happen. I mean, that just told me a lot. Now, it gets a lot worse than that. By the way, the reason I tell you that, this, is, this guy, this former president, is one of the driving forces, one of the founders behind the CBN. This was his act of, well, if you're going to fire me, then I'll get power back another way. It gets much worse. Last year's annual meeting, uh, they voted to form a sexual abuse task force and authorize hiring an independent investigation firm to investigate how the executive committee, now the executive committee is a group of Baptist lay people and, and pastors led by uh, a, an executive director that basically runs the convention business between annual meetings. So the independent investigation will look into, okay, down through the years, when you've heard accusations of sex abuse in Baptist churches, when you've heard about pastors who were confronted, fired, arrested, what did you do? How did you handle it? So it was, it was focused on the executive committee. Um, and they voted to renounce uh, attorney-client privilege. So all notes, all meetings between attorneys and the executive committee down through the years would be open season for this investigative firm. The CBN crowd fought against this tooth and nail, just fought against it, would, you know, just insisted, we can't do that, we can't investigate, we can't open up our books like that. They said it was a waste of money. They said it would expose us to lawsuits. They said, why are we making a big deal? We only had about 700 cases. Which, I mean, even if there were only 700 cases, that's tragic enough, but you realize, of course, Statistics show the number that get reported is about 3% of the reality, so just multiply that. When the investigation was complete a couple months ago, we saw why they were trying so hard to keep this from happening. Through the years, the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention responded to accusations of sex abuse, uh, even arrests, firings, with absolute silence. Churches would come to them, things would get reported, they would do nothing. They blamed it on their lawyers. They said, our attorney said we can't get involved. They said, well, you know, there's local church autonomy, so we can't interfere in what a church does. They also said, back then, because this came up in 2008, why don't we start a database? Somebody brought it up at an annual meeting. Let's start a database. So at least, at least if a, a pastor or a youth minister or a volunteer uh, is arrested for sex abuse of some kind, then we can put his name on there and that way churches can check that database and see so they won't hire that pastor or let that volunteer work with kids. The executive committee said, we can't do that, that's impossible. But the investigation found they were keeping a database for themselves. They had a database of all these people, they just didn't make it public. Plus, and this is maybe the worst thing, in recent years, when victims have grown more vocal about what's happened to them, 
people on the executive committee bullied them, harassed them, tried their best to silence them, shamed them in public. Now, I have to say this, and I'm glad to say this. The people who did this stuff aren't in positions of power anymore, and it didn't take any action on the Southern Baptist Convention's part. During the investigation, they all resigned. They just kind of dropped like flies, They like rats from a sinking ship. They resigned in the course of the investigation. So at the meeting last you know, a few weeks ago, we didn't have to take action about removing them from positions of authority. But this task force that was chaired by Bruce Frank, who's the pastor of uh, a church in North Carolina now, but for many years was a pastor of Humble First Baptist, Humble First Baptist, some of y'all know him. He was the chairman. He presented their findings and their recommendations based on the investigation. And it's a long report. I'm not going to cover it all, but they, they recommended that we do create that database finally. Uh, that churches that knowingly hire sex abusers, that we cut them off. They're no longer part of the SBC. Uh, that we start resources that will help churches prevent this in the future and resources to help people who get victimized. Also, there was a resolution made. Now, here's the thing about resolutions. Resolutions are just the Southern Baptist Convention re resolves that. It's just a public statement. It doesn't have any power or authority, but we have to vote on it. Do we as a body of, of people all agree that we want to make this statement? So this resolution was about sex abuse, and it said, uh, for, among other things, it publicly apologized by name to those victims who'd come forward and were harassed and shut down. But also, and I like this, it recommended to state legislators all across the country, you need to make it a crime for a minister to have sex with a church member that they're not married to. They don't just get fired, they get arrested because that's an abuse of power. Now, Bruce Frank had a lot on his plate because there were people who were chomping at the bit to shut this down. He handled the questions, I thought, very well. Uh, and it ended up passing easily, I'm thankful to say. Presidential election, uh, Bart Barber was elected president by a count of 61 to 39%. The 39% went to a guy who was endorsed by the CBN. Bart Barber, I've not met, but he's the pastor of First Baptist Church of Farmersville, Texas, and everything I've seen and read from him and heard from him, I'm very impressed and grateful. He's Biblically conservative, pastor of a, a, a medium-sized church, uh, runs his own farm, uh, has, a, has a cow named Lottie Moon. Uh, but, you know, biblically, biblically conservative, but a man of great grace that I think will be able to bring people together. Um, there was also a, a point at which we had to vote on whether to abolish the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Okay, so what is the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission? That's, that's, one of, that's probably the smallest of all the Baptist entities in terms of the money spent. It's the group that basically has two jobs. Number one, to help us to write things and, and make presentations that help us know how to think about things through a biblical worldview. I, at, the convention, at the annual meeting, they did a presentation on here's how we handle... Uh, you know, attacking abortion after Roe is overturned. And I've, I got the video of it. I'm going to email it all to you because it's excellent. That's one half of their job. The other half of their job is to 
lobby in, in Washington, D.C. on behalf of uh, religious liberty, on behalf of uh, other things that have to do with biblical issues. Um, do they always get it right? No. No, there are times when I definitely disagree with them, but overall I think they, they do a, a good job. Why was there a vote to abolish it? Because again, the CBN group doesn't like anybody who ever disagrees with them on anything. And that move to abolish it failed by a wide margin. Now, there was one more big item. There were lots of little things. There were lots of motions made and, and most of them never came to a vote. But one big thing that you may have heard about um, was there was a motion to disfellowship Saddleback Church in California. That's Rick Warren's church. Because recently they gave three women on their staff the title of pastor. Now, they're not the senior pastor, but it would be like if we changed Kathy's title from children's minister to children's pastor, right? So there was a motion that we disfellowshipped them because of that. And there was big discussion back and forth, complex issue. And, and I don't know, honestly, how I feel about this. And it didn't get resolved. They, they eventually tabled it after all this discussion and the credentials committee is going to do some more studying and come up with a recommendation. But I thought this was interesting. So after all that discussion, and they said, okay, we're going to come back to y'all with this later. All of a sudden, Rick Warren was there, right? And he gets to the microphone and, and they allow him to speak. And I'm just going to sum up what he said. And I'm not the hugest Rick Warren fan, but I liked what he said then. He said, listen, this is probably the last time I'll ever be at a Southern Baptist Convention. Sounds like we're getting kicked out. But I just want to say thank you. We couldn't have, Saddleback wouldn't exist in any other denomination because Baptists, the way we're structured is great for soul winning. I want to thank you for the support you've given me. And, and here's all we've accomplished thanks to your help. And then he said, so again, since I'm, this is probably my last convention, I just want to say, I sure hope in the future you stop fighting over minor things and get back to the Great Commission. And that got a big applause. I thought that was, thought that was exciting. Now, let me just sum up. There's three most encouraging things that I saw and experienced. Number one were the positive steps on the sexual abuse issue in churches. Long way to go, a lot more work to do, but I thought there were finally positive steps in that direction. Uh, just coming clean. Number two, I'm more confident now in the people leading our institutions than I have been in a long, long time. Not just the Southern Baptist Convention president, I think he's a good guy, but the president of my seminary now is Adam Greenway, and I'm very, very impressed with him. Other people who made presentations I don't know as well, but I, I like the people who are in positions of authority and the direction we're headed. Number three, this was the best moment in the whole convention, and this is what I want to stop with. So every year they have what they call a sending ceremony for the International Mission Board. They get new missionaries to get up and stand behind the podium and introduce themselves. And so... You know, a man and his wife stand there and say, we're, you know, Joe and Bobby, Joe Smith from uh, Toadsuck, Arkansas, and we go to First Baptist, and we're going to Malawi, and we're going to work with uh, people who have leprosy or whatever. So this, there were 52 different individuals or couples who did this. Okay. A whole lot of them. I mean, it felt like at least half had to stand behind screens 
and just their silhouettes were all you could see because they're going to places where it's not safe to share the gospel, right? So if, if, their, name, if their names or their faces are visible, then they're in trouble. So they get up and they share. You know, we're from North Carolina. We're from California. We're from North Dakota. And we're going to this place. They can't even name the place. We're going to Central Asia. We're going to uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And here's what we're going to be doing. Pray for us. So 52 of these. And it took an hour. And when it was over, the president of the IMB, the International Mission Boards, Dr. Paul Chitwood, and he got up, and the first thing he said was, this is why we gather together, and this is why we need to stay together. And y'all, there were 11,000 people in the room, and there was a standing ovation that must have lasted five minutes. Because I think that's what matters most, is we need to understand, again, what happens in the SBC doesn't directly impact what we do in First Baptist Conroe, but it is so good for churches to come together and work together. Could we send missionaries all over the world, us, our little church? No, we couldn't. We could maybe sponsor a couple, maybe. Could we, could we fund a seminary? Could we train up you know, people to do ministry? Could we fund orphanages and hospitals and, and all the things that, that get done? Could we impact legislation in Washington? We couldn't do any of that. But when tens of thousands of churches band together, because we all agree on the core doctrines, because we all agree that missions is important, that, the ev that evangelism is important, when we band together and work together, we can do amazing things. And so my feeling is that the convention is in desperate need of revival. Baptisms have been going down for years, yes. Are there problems in individual churches? Of course. But the direction, I think, is solid. And I see no evidence of any drift toward liberalism of the political variety or the theological variety. And so I'm excited. I'm grateful. Grateful to be a Southern Baptist and grateful to be able to participate in what's going on. So any questions? Yeah. Yeah, bud. I'm really glad to hear the words. I really am. Because I, I've been conservative about this, but as you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to draw this one analogy and then I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. In the, both, in the American political realm, the conservative politicians and conservatives of America have lost ground to the liberal far left. And we've lost that ground primarily through the infiltration of all of our universities with extremely liberal professors. Mm -hmm. And so they can poison our kids and come out of college. And a lot of them go into the news media. And so the news media is complete captive mm -hmm. of, of uh, socialism. Mm -hmm. And they did that through the invasion of our universities. So my question is, what is the SBC doing to make sure that that same Liberalism isn't infiltrated into our seminaries because that's what concerns me, not the ones that are here now. I'm right. talking about the ones that are going to seminary today. Yeah. What is being done to protect our seminaries from this creeping liberalism within the professors of the seminary? 
because that's the way it captures. Right. That's the way socialism captures everything is, is through the education system. So that's the question. That's right. the concern. All I can say, Bud, is the seminaries, every professor has to agree to teach according to the Baptist faith and message, has to agree to that doctrinal statement. Um, I would also say, you know, do I know every professor even in the seminary I went to? Of course not. I would say, however, there are plenty of liberal seminaries. Students that go to Southern Baptist seminaries go there to get scripture, to get uh, trained in ministry. If that was happening, if, if professors were bringing in uh, either political or theological liberalism into their classrooms, I think you'd hear it from the students because the students come from the churches. And the students would hear that and they'd come home and they'd say, I don't like what's going on. Something's messed up here. And I'm not hearing that. Any other questions? All right, thank y'all. I didn't know about that. Was that recent? That's what I read on I know that's happened in the past. We've, uh, I say we, the Southern Baptist Convention has disfellowship churches that. Uh, performed a gay marriage or that ordained someone who was openly practicing homosexuality. So there's a, there's a short list of things that a church can do that will get you thrown out. And when I say thrown out, what that basically means is we say, we don't want your money. You can't come to the meeting anymore. And, you know, one of them is, you know, endorsing homosexuality in that way. Uh, and there are a couple of others. And now, of course, condoning sex abuse. But yeah, that has happened. And if that happened in Georgia, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Anything else? All right, let me pray for us one more time. Lord God, I thank you that you are king overall. I thank you, Lord, for the things you do through uh, broken vessels. And I thank you for the good things that are happening in your church and specifically in the Southern Baptist Church. I pray for our convention. I pray for revival. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would keep us strong in your word and keep us focused on the Great Commission. Lord, I pray for revival across the evangelicalism and across your church. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.